This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. He's involved in a number of businesses. He's a great role model. Telling it like it is. Giving you both sides of the story. This is Cats at Night. Great American, a great New Yorker. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. This is John Katsimatidis, Cats at Night, the number one show at 5 o'clock in the whole East Coast, just about. And uh, we have a great show for you again today. And in the in the studio, we have a common sense Democrat, Judge Richard Weinberg, a common sense uh, Republican, former Congressman Peter King, and my sidekick. We have Lydia Serrani. And by the way, this is a TriCast: WABC Radio seven seventy, WLIR, and uh, nine seventy AM on the dial. John, you're becoming so popular that people are saying what you say as like a catchphrase, right, Congressman yeah, King? Yeah, I was uh, at a uh, dinner on Saturday night. I'm the Grand Marshal of the, of the Lindenhurst St. Patrick's Day Parade, and it was the installation. I think the whole dinner would be about me. So when the guy gets up and introduced <laughs> me, he stands up and he goes, what the heck is going on? I want common sense. Everybody says laughing. The whole <laughs> audience knew about it, and they forgot about me. Then they wanted to talk about John all night. Well, part of the reason is because we have a great show. We're going to have General Jack Keane coming up very shortly. Then we'll be speaking with of, of Ann Donnelly. We'll also be speaking uh, with George P- uh, Governor Pataki, excuse me, who's on a great humanitarian mission. He's on his way to Hungary. A- absolutely. Right there on the border of Ukraine. He's going to the border to help. Uh, you'll hear it's a great interview. Senator Alphonse D'Amato, as well as Senator Bill Haggerty. And on the line with us right now, we have Michael Goodwin, Pulitzer Prize-winning writer, and we'll also be speaking. Did I mention Ann Donnelly already? Yes. Ann Donnelly, Great too. So we will be speaking you know what I'm going to say to Michael Goodwin? What the heck is going on? <laughs> I'm not going to fall for that one. Okay. All right. I mean, there's so many things going on, Michael. It's, it's crazy. I mean, I, I'm not, is it just my imagination or so many things are happening at the same time? Well, it does feel that way. Uh, it often uh, feels that sort of events are piling up on top of one another so quickly that we don't have time to, to understand and to get the full story about any one of them until the next one comes along. And uh, it, it, I have to say, uh, being in the news business, it's, this is the best of times and the worst of times because you, you're, you're never without interesting stories, but you also are somewhat dissatisfied that you're not able to get your hands around them completely for the readers. Well, uh, what in, in your library right now, what is the number one concern to you? Well, look, I, I think that uh, obviously it is uh, Vladimir Putin and whether or not he would resort to nuclear weapons if he feels he has no other choice. Now, that that is a a topic that is frightening even to consider uh it takes us back to the almost the duck and cover days but uh there's a growing body of of uh opinion that he is he's trapped now he's trapped in ukraine he can't withdraw and he can't apparently succeed in taking over the whole country 
And so what does he do? And as a friend of mine said, uh, who's very worried about this, how does he get out of this box without using nuclear weapons, without at least a demonstration of, of a, perhaps a small nuclear weapon at sea just to show how serious he is? Don't forget I mean, this fooling around with uh, the Chernobyl plant first and then the the other nuclear reactor uh, in Ukraine, uh, one of six other ones, uh, that they were they they were actually firing rockets and having a firefight uh, near it. I mean, it's inconceivable that you would even do something like that, given the potential catastrophe. Um, And then, of course, his uh, determination to put his uh, nuclear forces on high alert. Now, who knows what he's thinking? Uh, so that, that to me, John, is sort of worry number one in the world. Michael Goodwin, I think the only person that he, that he will listen to at this moment in time is the Chinese. Well, have no fear. Kamala Harris is heading over there now. <laughs> yes. Isn't that great? <laughs> I yeah, know. Please. Uh, the Chinese, he may have, we may have a chance to, you know, if if uh, Donald Trump was president, I think he would call the Chinese and say, take your friend Putin and calm him down. I think that's right. I, I, I think that Trump did appreciate sort of the, the great power game. And Biden seems to be playing checkers when they're playing, you know, three-dimensional chess. He, he seems to never to be anticipating the next move, always one or two moves behind. And that's how you get in trouble, because you, a, a, you, you miss your opportunities to, to make a difference uh, with timing, but, but also then at some point you, you might feel the need to catch up with a big move. And I think that in, in this event, uh, that could be dangerous as well. So, look, obviously, uh, the suffering of the Ukrainian people is, is horrific to watch. But we may, if Putin is crazy enough, we may long for this time as something of, of, of an innocence. Uh, because once the nuclear weapons are in play, I mean, we've just never seen that. We've never really seen that world. I mean, you talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis and things yeah, like that. Cru- other was it Khrushchev didn't cross that line. That's right. That's uh, right. JFK, and, I, was, uh, I was around then. So was JFK I. Uh, and Peter King is around. And uh, Khrushchev, uh, JFK drew a line and says, if you cross that, we're going to sink the boat. We're going to sink the carriers, do whatever. And... Uh, uh, Khrushchev blinked, turned around the Navy, and went the other way. Michael, if I could ask you a question, assume that China has some good faith, and they, and he, uh, you know, she does want to try to resolve it. What could they offer Putin that would encourage him to leave without totally emasculating Ukraine? I, th- I think they could tell him basically to accept you know, perhaps the the two eastern provinces, the the Donbass region, um, that if he would settle for that, uh, some kind of federation with Russia, perhaps something that uh, Ukraine would not necessarily be giving it up, but something that Putin could say was a victory. And then I think China would would have to buy into uh, you know all of Russia's oil and and coal. Uh, natural gas. Uh, I mean, 
it needs it needs a customers now. Russia will need customers. Mike, when you say uh, federation, you mean a federation as far as the Donbass region or a federation with all of Ukraine? Because you know, could Ukraine trust Russia? I mean, a year no, or two from no, now. No, no, no. no. It, would, it would only have to be the Donbass right, region. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I think Ukraine is going to remain independent or it's going to be totally occupied. I don't think there's any way that Ukraine would give up its independence voluntarily. I agree with that. Okay. And uh, that's uh, – what about oil? You know, if, if, if Poland send those MiGs to the mm, Ukraine, mm. are they sending them or they're not sending them? What's the, uh, what's the status? <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it seems to be a, an odd situation. Um, I, I think the, uh, the way I've been hearing it anyway is that the MiGs may not be essential – that uh, Ukraine already still has much of its aircraft intact, its air force, uh, and that the problem is that the Russian uh, batteries, uh, anti, anti-aircraft batteries, are pretty good and covering the country. So it's not the MiGs, the MiGs might be subject to the same problem. Uh, so they're not seen by the Americans anyway as a great solution that they feel like it's the, the Americans seem to be arguing that the real battle is on the ground so and, what in should, terms of the, the tanks and everything to take them out. So, Michael, it's Richard Weinberger. So what should we be giving the Ukraine that we haven't done already? You know, Richard, it's hard to say uh, from this vantage point. I think that we're we're all plowing things in there. And again, it's very late. It should have been done earlier. It should have been done in a way to deter Russia and to protect the Ukrainian people. Uh, that it's being still done here two weeks into the invasion when you have a hospital being hit. You have apparently now 18 different kinds of medical facilities have been hit by the Russians. And so the argument that this is not intentional just doesn't fly at this stage of the game. But look, I think NATO, one of one of the things I think has happened here is that NATO uh, the European members of NATO have gone out front of the Americans. Th- this, I think, is, is a first in history. Uh, I mean, for many years, it seemed as though there would be no NATO without America. Well, I think this time you're seeing that there is a NATO because it's in their neighborhood, of course. Well, they, they, their ass is on the line. I mean, I hate to say it like that, but right. that's... Uh... Yeah, but I know the war in Kosovo, John. Uh, NATO did nothing. Uh, it was air, air attacks. The U.S. did 95%. The British had 5% and screwed up half of that 5%. And had you not gone in there, Congressman, with Governor Pataki, uh, God only knows. God only knows. Well, and, it was, and, and, of and course, President look, Clinton. And, and, and you look at the sort of the war on terrorism. NATO was a no-show on the war on terrorism, um, you know, throughout Europe, throughout the world. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a funky organization. Um, I think it, it has clearly pulled together here at the right time. I think Germany's decision to go along with the SWIFT uh, sanctions, to go along with uh, reducing uh, Russian energy products, I think was a very big move. And, 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 and Germany also sent weapons to Ukraine. 
I mean, you had all kinds of the Swiss sending weapons to Ukraine, always neutral. So I think this is a big event in in the life of NATO, in the life of a of a treaty that has sort of come to life. But again, Joe Biden, I think, is trying is playing catch up. And it's just fascinating. The Wall Street Journal story today where the leaders of Saudi Arabia and the UAE would not take his phone calls. Uh, Well, let me tell you something. And uh, I was with the uh, uh, former uh, uh, Canadian prime minister for dinner last night, and he just got back from Saudi Arabia, and uh, he was told that Saudi Arabia would not take Biden's phone calls. And the Wall Street Journal is reporting, Michael Goodwin, again, we're speaking with the Pulitzer Prize winning writer for the New York Post. They they're reporting the same thing and that Reuters was also reporting now. I just totally lost my uh, train of thought that, oh, he's trying to get oil from Venezuela now. So they actually well, confirmed it through their that's sources. That's subsidiary of Russia. Yeah. It's insanity. Yeah. It's insanity. And you, what's going on? Now I sound like well, John. I, I, I look, I, I think that uh, Joe Biden or somebody who's ever the acting president drank the Kool-Aid on the Green New Deal. And it's insane. It makes no sense logically. It makes no sense in terms of even environmental issues. You would rather have Venezuela and Iran and Saudi Arabia pump your oil rather than you and Canada uh, so that you could keep the jobs here so that America could become energy independent. I mean, we discussed this last week. How can anyone not now look at the playing field and say, you know what, in this world, it's good to be energy independent. Why would you, you would, you would, most countries would give their arm to be energy independent in this, in this type of environment, but not Joe Biden. Uh, it, it's, it's unfathomable. Forget, what he's don't forget what Secretary thinking. Gates said. <laughs> yeah, Secretary well, Gates, is- I had breakfast with him a couple months ago. He says, John, I've served eight presidents. And under all eight presidents, whatever Joe Biden did, he always screwed up international politics. And, John, I want to ask you, because you, you're, you're an energy expert, basically. You've already predicted that we're going to have $7 a gallon gas. I said only if it holds over $120 a barrel. It, that's true. If it holds. It dropped today $10. Thank God. So let's see what happens. Well, is there anything else you want to say uh, before uh, we go to break? Uh, Michael? Well, no, just uh, John, John, you asked what was the most important thing. Uh, yes. and, and I said Russia. And I think the second most important thing is is the bad, poor, dangerous leadership of Joe Biden. It uh, is very serious in this situation. But I think it Biden's leadership problems expand even greater than this, as we saw in Afghanistan. And now this choice to do the Iran deal again, presumably, to get oil from Venezuela. I mean, the bad ideas never stop. And that's the Iran undermine deal us. is horrible. I mean, yeah, that will undermine us so much in the Middle East. I mean, Trump did such a great job of pulling the Arab countries away from Iran, firming up Israel. And now, if we're playing games with Iran, that's going to, I think, undermine everybody in the Middle East. And now the White House is trying to create this narrative that a lot of Americans are believing that we're seeing these high prices at the pump and the inflation due to Putin. This has been going on from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, well, look, any port in a storm, right? I mean, they're, in a, they're in a political storm at home as well, and so they're, they're grabbing uh, at any excuse they can make that don't blame us. Well, Michael Goodwin, thank you so much, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again real soon because we've got to tell the American people the truth. Thank My you. My pleasure. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. And 
Uh, Peter King, I understand we have Ann Donnelly standing by. Yeah. Would you bring her in? Since uh, she she is, uh, used to be one of your constituents. Uh, she certainly is and was, and she's absolutely, you know, uh, what a treasure for Nassau County. Uh, Ann Donnelly is the ultimate prosecutor. She's an ultimate professional, and I'm really, really proud to introduce the district attorney of Nassau County, who a year ago nobody thought had a chance, who six months ago nobody had, thought had a chance, and she led the ticket with one of the biggest victories in the history of Nassau County. Ann Donnelly, how are you, Ann? Congressman King, thank you very much. I am well. Hello, John. How are you? Good. It was nice to see you go from minus 20 to plus 20, and, and that was the <laughs> best victory uh, you gave the people of uh, Nassau County that now, under your leadership, they're going to feel safer. And, uh, and Bruce Blakeman, I understand he's collecting a lot of guns. You're going to definitely feel safer. Yes. <laughs> So, and how is the job treating you so far? Is the office? Well, you worked there for many years. How is it now that you're sitting in the in the top seat? Uh, you know, the office is treating me very well. I find that there's a lot of things you you find sitting in the DA seat that you didn't know be, about before, because you know you're concentrating on your one area or your set of cases. So it's been uh, interesting to uh, kind of expand that whole uh, view of it. Now, also in Suffolk, there's a new DA and Ray Tierney. How are the two of you cooperating? And also, how do you cooperate with, let's say, the, the DA in Queens? I'm just thinking of you know, the two counties that surround Nassau. Yep, we have a very good working relationship. I have spoken to both Melinda and Ray. Um, you know, we're available. If they need a special prosecutor. They're available. If I need a special prosecutor, and everybody seems to be in it together. So it's a good feeling. And, and it's uh, Judge Richard Weinberg. Welcome back. Thank you, Richard. How are you? I'm great. Listen, I'm still concerned, number one, about the so-called bail reform law. What do you, what do you think is going to happen with that? Uh, unfortunately, unless we see a big change in this election cycle, I don't think anything's going to happen with it so, because so- nobody will listen. We have been up to Albany. Other people have been up to Albany, and we can't get anyone to listen to the real problems this has brought about. Well, uh, you know, me and uh, Judge Weinberg, we had uh, lunch uh, yesterday along with Alphonse D'Amato with uh, Kish James, and we uh, we told her, we read her, we told her that uh, that uh, we need law and order in the state. Why should 8.5 million people in New York City uh, feel unsafe because maybe 3,000 criminals that are making everybody's life miserable. And it's not even just New York City. I know what you're well, experiencing on Nassau County. Two million people in Nassau. Well, we solved Nassau County's problem. And Donnelly's the end. Yeah, but I, in Westchester County, we're seeing it spill over to Well, these... we're going to solve Westchester County, Please too. do. So, Ann Donnelly, how are you? We seeing... solved Staten Island. That's, that's... They can't go over the bridge if they're criminals. I know. we got to arrest them over there. But how that's do you joke. see these, I know, soft on crime policies kind of reverberate to the suburbs? Well, I think one of the biggest things that I've seen is the incredible increase in firearms that we have seized this year. Um, This year, we've seized over 94 firearms in the first two months. The same period in 2021 was 45 weapons. People are not – criminals are not afraid to break the law anymore. They're not afraid to say there's no consequences, so I'm just going to do what I want. And it, it, it scares me. It we have really to you stop, inquire, and frisk. You have to do it. That's the first thing, to keep guns off the street. Then they're afraid 
to bring them out into the street. How about we prosecute the lower level crimes? There was just a, a man that was arrested on the subway. He punched the cop. He was out. There was already an active warrant for his arrest for punching another cop. I mean, that's it. It's just kind of common sense policing. You you be proactive versus reactive, no? Exactly. And we're we're just letting them out through the revolving door. So it just empowers them more. I mean, look at these people going into, you know, stores and wiping shelves out and walking out, you know, whistle on a happy tune because no one's going to stop them. And they're coming from out of state, too. Yeah, and even if someone's not going to stop them, we can't hold them. We can't prosecute them until months from now when they've committed it five more times. And how are you coordinated with uh, Pat Ryder, the police commissioner? Uh, Pat and I have known each other for so many years. We get along very well. Um there's nothing he asks of me that I don't try to get done and nothing I ask of him that he doesn't try to get done. It's great to have that coordination because I know it's unfortunately, they, it appears they don't have him in Manhattan where I know Keyshawn Sewell has been very uh, critical of uh, D.A. Bragg. So I think it means so much to have that coordination and cooperation between the police commissioner and the district attorney. It does because, as I was telling Patty, because of this uptick in guns, I'm starting a new firearm suppression and intelligence unit here in the DA's office. I'm going to concentrate on long-term investigations into how guns are coming into Nassau County. And Patty's all in. Well, well thank you so much. But I said what we said to Tish James, too, yesterday, because she's talking about guns over the border. I said if somebody is professional, moving like 10, 15, 20, 30 guns, they should have a mandatory jail term of minimum 10 years. And if somebody is carrying around a gun in New York City or, or New York State, give them a mandatory one year. Let's go back to the one year. Yeah, because, you know, in New York City, a gang guy or a drug guy, they get into an altercation. Now they're just pulling a gun out and using it. Yep, yep. You know, well, because, they, and, like you said, they're not afraid to carry them on the streets. They're not afraid to get caught with them. And Donnelly, i got to go to our friend Al D'Amato because he, otherwise he's going to get mad at me. <laughs> and we also still have a General Keene. He's coming up as well. Thank you so much for your great job that you're doing in Nassau County. And let's talk to the rest of the counties and make sure everybody's safe in every county in New York State. Thank you I so agree. much. I agree. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Thanks for everything, Ann. Thank you. Let's take a break and let's come back with Alphonse D'Amato. Talk Radio 77 WABC. A common sense recap of the day's biggest stories. It's John Katsimatidis and Cats at Night on 77 WABC. Welcome back to the John Katsimatidis Cats at Night show. Right now, we've got the best senator we've ever had here in New York, possibly the country. Oh, boy, I wish you were back in office again. Telling it like it is. Keeping common sense because we need it. We need it really bad. Senator Alfonso, how are you, sir? Excellent. Terrific. Um, because um, I'm not in office. I don't have to watch everything um, I say because the media will jump on this conservative Republican because I'm afraid we're heading uh, to socialism. And and, and I asked that of my former colleague, Pete King, who was truly a remarkable, great congressman and who had support and had more Democrats uh, speaking well of him than Republicans and Republicans love him, but he worked with his colleagues together to get things done for our nation and for our state. 
And we don't have that today. I was just say, whatever I did in Congress, I learned from you when I was a councilman and you were the presiding supervisor. And you can hear him down the hall, uh, right? No, I mean, also so, get the job done and do whatever you have to do to get it done. And don't stand on ceremony and don't stand on politics. Because the two of you have integrity and you, that's lacking. And Senator DeMotto worked very closely too. with Senator Moynihan. They worked the same yeah. way. Well, well, Pat Moynihan, after the first year, became uh, the first year his staff was terrible. We had dinner one night. The next morning, I could barely walk. We met <laughs> and down at, the, at 11 o'clock in the morning. And we I tell you, stop, with, point stop on, with the Irish next, jokes. It's not St. Patrick's next, Day yet. The next 17 years we worked together. And, and I mentioned this before, but I had a filibuster, went like the third longest. And, and I was in the filibuster, it was at 2.15 in the morning. And do you know who came down to help me to start asking questions so I wouldn't have to talk? Pat Moynihan. And he stood with me uh, for about eight hours until it ended. And that was a fight to keep Smith Corona in this country, and uh, they had a big factory. They employed about 3,000 people outside of Syracuse. And um, he he helped and helped and helped. And, and we, we finally, uh, the house went out, so there was nothing we could do to, to save uh, uh, Smith Corona. And, of course, they, they moved to Mexico, and we lost them and, and all of those jobs. That's Pat Moynihan. A Democrat coming down to help his colleague, Aldemaro, a Republican, because he put the interests of our state and of our country before petty partisan politics. Well, you know who's not doing that right now, Senator D'Amato? Your old friend there, President Biden. What is going on with him? Why why is he not? Joe. What's going on? Joe is asleep at the switch. He has become captured uh, uh, by uh, the... Uh, people who want to save the world, um, and and uh, we, we want uh, electric everything. We want to do away with fossil fuels. But and by the way, we should be moving towards that, but do it in a timely, orderly way, and don't just stop the exploration of oil uh, and natural gas, which are the the best ways to transition into more electric affordable power. Um, but no, he's listening to uh, uh, the guy from Massachusetts. What's his name, uh, uh, Pete? John? Oh, John Kerry, you mean? John Kerry. John Kerry. Another one of your old friends. <laughs> yeah, I'd say, was he a stiff or what? God. Oh, oh. Oh. Horrible. Horrible. Oh. And of course, it was John Kerry's son who was with Hunter Biden flying around uh, on on airport two, selling their stuff to to China and Russia. I don't know if you know that it was his adoptive son. Chris, Chris uh, Hines uh, is a Hines. very decent kid. The minute he realized they were doing the wrong thing, Chris Chris called me up and said to me, "I just want to let you know, John, I am quitting this crap and I'm not doing it." And that's it. Wow. But, but that's that's what was going on, and and incredible. Incredible. And so we have no border policy. Oh, by the way, you know, you hear Biden. Oh, I had to get out of Afghanistan because Trump said we had to do it. Oh, really? So the first thing you do, the first day you come into office, 
you, you, you change the, the rules with respect to bringing uh, uh, the oil and gas from Canada. You stop the pipeline. First day you, you come in, you change the policy that we had with Mexico where we, we stopped them at the border and they have to make their application there. And we go from basically no one coming in uh, uh, improperly and I- illegally to over a million a year. And by the way, let me tell you, all those school kids who come in, the ones they flew in to Long Island, they, they cost the average taxpayer over $20,000 a year. You believe that? In Nassau mm-hmm. County, it's $24,000 a student. So they just fly them in, hundreds of them. Who pays for it? Well, that, you know, uh, I, I, Senator DeMotto, by the way, shouldn't uh, you come up, come up with a, I don't want to use the word scheme, come up with an idea yep. of yep. how to sue uh, the federal government for reimbursement for Nassau County? Because what rights do they have to send all these Immigrants in there and foot us with the bill and foot Nassau County yep. with the bill and also right. encourage MS thirteen. That'd make a that'd make a great lawsuit. I, I I know of a good of attorney we could use. Well, you have a great yeah. county attorney and that's Judge a brilliant Adams. idea. You have Judge Adams, a former brilliant. appellate division justice, is now the county attorney for for Bruce Black. That's the only I way think that's learn. a great idea, Senator. And by the way, they need you back in either Congress or the Senate. So. Do what you have to do. The people of the of Nassau County, the people of New York City, New York State, need you in office. Well, John, that's nice to say, but here's the problem. Running today, you have to run, if you're a Republican, and particularly in New York, New Jersey, et cetera, this area, the media works against you. They absolutely do. Anything, any charge, any species charge, any sensationalism that can hurt a Republican, they come out with it. They're there, particularly if you're not with their 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 uh, uh, stop breathing, you know, stop everything, stop fossil fuels. Unless you adopt that attitude, you're in big trouble. Unless you adopt the attitude, uh, we're going to pay for everybody's everything, every baby that's born, every kid who wants to go to school, we'll pay for everything. And that, that's great. Uh, if you can, but if, if you have working middle class people who are forgotten and the tax burdens become so high, what do they do? They move out of the state, and that's what they're doing in states like New York and New Jersey. Yep. They're leaving. They're uh, going to, to states down south. They're going to Texas, going to Florida, and it's not just because of the weather. It's because of the economic climate that is created in this state. Absolutely. Uh, Senator, Senator Aldemato, thank you for everything you've done. I just got a text from Jack Keane. General Keane has some breaking news on, uh, on the Ukraine. And we have to, I said to him, we'll, we'll take a break and take him right after Senator D'Amato. Thank you, Senator. Yes. Great job, take Alfonso. Take care, Pete. Okay. Talk Radio 77 WABC. John Ketson with Welcome back to the John Katz Matidis Cats at Night show. It is an honor to introduce the next guest, General Jack Keane. He's a retired four-star general, former vice chief of staff uh, for the United States Army, also a Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. He's a national security analyst and serves as chairman 
of the Institute for the Study of War. And he is just uh, an, an amazing person, a, a hero. And thank you so much, General Jack Keane, for your service. Tell us what's the latest going on in Ukraine. Well, the, the uh, in the northern sector and the main effort uh, dealing with Kiev, the capital city, uh, for a number of days now, uh, the Russians have been preparing to restart their offensive, and they began that offensive today, but it was not very impressive. Uh, they moved nine battalions uh, onto the western side of the city, the northwestern part, up near a, a, an airport by the name of Hostomol, and they got stopped by the Ukrainians. And uh, on the east side, they're coming a much longer distance. Uh, to come and as they were making their way down and they were interdicted also by the ukrainians and they had to get as opposed to staying on the offense they had to go on the defense so uh much as they have had problems uh from the very beginning in, in attempting to encircle kiev the restart of this offensive at least in its first day uh, did not do too well. And, and so our audience understands what their plan would be is to come down to Kiev on the west on a single axis and circle the city, come down on the east side. And what goes through the city is a river. So that's why they're splitting their forces. And they come down on the east side and they're, they're coming on two converging axes, be down into one and then encircle the city and shut it off. And then they would in those formations that are coming with them are not just uh, tanks and fighting vehicles, but they have lots of artillery and obviously support vehicles as well. And once they encircle the city, they would use the artillery. We call them area attack weapons, tube artillery, rocket artillery to hammer the city. And they would do that for a considerable amount of time uh, to destroy as much as they possibly could, seeking a surrender you know, from the government and the, and the people in the city, if they did not get that, then they would move inside the city with their combat forces and attempt to go block by block, building by building. So our audience understands in urban warfare, which this is, a city of 3 million, likely down to maybe closer to 2 million, still in residence, um, it actually favors the defense of the city because the obvious buildings provide significant cover and concealment uh, for an attacking force. Uh, the the other thing that we have to keep in the back of our minds is that the Russians uh, pull out all the stops here. They don't make war just on the Ukrainian military. As a matter of doctrine, they make war on the people who are supporting the military to break their will and force capitulation. So they have no compunction about slaughtering people's lives, as we've been witnessing now for two weeks. But on an assault of a city of that size, it could get quite intense. And they're also prepared to use chemical weapons if they had to. Um, they, they certainly sanctioned Assad using chemical weapons in Syria when they were providing the air power for Assad. So but they have to get there first and and encircle the city. And we'll see how they they haven't been able to do that in two weeks. They started today and they still haven't been able to do it. That's the that's the main effort. Uh, in the south, 
they've had some progress uh, in the South, and their, their, their desire is to cut the Ukrainians off from the sea. Uh, 70% of all the imports and exports dealing with Ukraine, which is the second largest country in Europe, comes from the sea. And, they, and Russia wants to cut that off. They, they have made some progress with that, but they have a long way to, to go to be able to cut the southern coast off. Uh, and that's kind of where we are. They still have not taken a major city in Ukraine. They still do not have air superiority. Ukrainian aircraft are flying and doing damage. And they still have not been that effective with their offensive cyber activity uh, in Ukraine. General, uh, as a, uh, being in charge of our uh, army in the United States, uh, are you uh, surprised at the lack of ability of the, of the mainstream of the Russian army? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely stunned by it, to be frank. Uh, and, and I think many of us, you know, as <laughs> it just brings me back, John. I mean, many of us, uh, we, we we overrated the Soviet uh, military before the collapse, and when they collapsed, and we got the got to see it with our, ourselves and meet all their generals and the rest of it, we realized that uh, we had made these guys about eight foot tall, and they were they were nowhere near that. And I think we've done a little bit of that again because we bought into the narrative that Putin was modernizing his military for the last ten years and you know showcasing certain things. But a lot of the basics, they just don't have. And they have never really done anything on a scale like this since World War II. Uh, So that's one of the problems that they have, just the sheer scale of the operation. And and they're having leadership issues. They're having logistic issues. They're having morale issues. And then some of their equipment just isn't as good as, as advertised. Also, generally, there used to be a protocol where our generals would be talking to their generals on on a, on a daily on a daily basis. Is that still going on? Do you think? I'm just asking your opinion. I'm not asking for inside information. <laughs> you mean uh, talking to the Russian generals? Yes. I don't think we've had any serious conversations with them since this started. We may have. I mean, uh, General Milley, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, who I talk to regularly um, and in communication regularly uh, during this, I'm saying. Uh, I know he spoke to the head of the the Russian military before this all started, um, you know, trying to tell him how foolish he would be in doing this and that they would likely lose um, in the long run because there's no way they have enough forces to occupy Ukraine. Even if they topple the government, they can't control the people. Yeah, so I don't I don't know if we're having any conversations uh, with them now. We may. We have uh, also established a deconfliction way to to talk to each other if there's an emergency taking place where our forces are about to fire at one another. Uh, we can pick up a phone and talk to them in a matter of seconds. But uh, I why why are you asking that question? What's your thought behind it? Well, my thought is uh, Putin is the is threatening that red button. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and and I, will will his generals do that kind of stupid thing? Well, I think uh, Russian generals would have, would likely obey him, but I, I I would also 
tell you that uh, there's dissension. We know this for a fact. There was dissension before this operation began. Uh, many, not many, but a number of the leaders questioned uh, not just why are we doing it, but could they do it, given the country is so large. And some of them who have had experience in Ukraine know how tough and resolved the Ukrainian people are, that everybody would everybody would get into the fight, not just the Ukraine military. Because there's been Russian troops assigned to Crimea and in and out of the Donbass region for the last uh, eight years, and they certainly have a pretty good understanding of, of, of what's taken place. So a couple of things the Russians did from the outset is, one, they underestimated the Ukrainian people. I mean, and, and the Ukrainian military. And then they designed, they conceptualized a plan. When I first saw it, um, you know, you grow up in the military and you, and you become a senior leader, you're, you're used to dealing with campaign plans on a regular basis. And when I saw the campaign plan attacking on four axes, a country that large, each one of them have to have its own logistical support and its own air power and artillery to support all of it and doing it simultaneously. That is complicated, very hard to do, very ambitious. We could do something like that, but we're practiced at this, and they are not. And they, they failed miserably. They actually thought that they could take the country down in two days, John, just by their mere presence, that the Ukrainian military, when they saw them, would just surrender. And they only committed a third of the entire 190,000 troops that they had deployed to go across the border uh, into Ukraine on those first couple of days. And then they had to completely regroup and recover from that at, uh, since that time. Obviously, they know full well now what they're, what they're really un up against, and they certainly underestimated them. And they all also probably buy in, John, to their own hubris a little bit, you know, about how good they are. It, it and, looks and like it, they have another Afghanistan on their hands. It's a good analogy, I'll tell you, my friend. Yes. Um, they uh, in, in Afghanistan, they had a superior force, but they didn't know how to fight people that were hiding in the mountains and didn't want to be found because they were not dealing. They weren't dealing with a Ukrainian military organization. You know, they were dealing uh, <clears throat> with insurgents who were just hiding from them. And they, what they did is they brought in their tanks and their big hind helicopters, and they just took out villages at a time, slaughtered the people. And at th that just intensified the, uh, the, uh, the Taliban and what they were called in those days, the Mojahedin, uh, to attack them. And of course, we gave them this, the Stinger missiles, which were very effective. General, this and is former was, Congressman Pete King. If I just first of all, thank you for your service. But also, you know, you mentioned the uh, dissatisfaction in the military. I, I, I saw Putin publicly attack the head of the intelligence uh, agencies last week. Uh, you know, more people are getting agitated, and also the uh, you know the uh, oligarchs are losing their money. Do you see any chance that Putin could be eased out? It is. I, I don't think anybody conceptualized that a few weeks ago, uh, Congressman. But I, I do think that that is now an issue on the table. Um, it, it'll be a while. I think it would only happen as a result of 
the people pushing back on him. I don't see his leaders pushing back on him. Uh, he's he's too protected to be able to, for any of those leaders to do that. Uh, the the largest entity in this government is the is his Secret Service uh, Security Services, um, and and they're protecting him and his regime. Well, but if the people on Mars start to come out, not the young people who are tied to the internet, but it'll take a while for the the sanctions and everything to take hold, you know, with the working class people and others. But if they show up in the hundreds of thousands uh, on the streets of Moscow and other cities because of their suffering, there is a distinct possibility that could happen. General Jack Keane, thank you for everything you've done for our country and continue to do for our country. Uh, Thank you for letting the American people know what's going on. And I hope we can catch up with you again real soon. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Always enjoy talking to the audience. Thank Thank you, you, General. Uh, Are we taking a break? I understand we have the senator. Do you want to talk to him right now? Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee? Let's do that. Let's talk to him right now. Senator? Hello, John. Bill Haggerty here. Bill Haggerty, how have you been? I'm I'm doing very well. I, I listened to your the, the back part of your interview with General Kane. Oh, he's some uh, uh, he's some crazy, guy, he's, some general. He's great, great American. Uh, I I think he always gives just a sparklingly clear analysis in a very tough situation that we're looking at there. I appreciate him advising all of us. It's just so frightening how he's talking about he could possibly Putin could possibly use chemical weapons. That was shocking. I know that was that was really shocking. It was shocking because that's one once one step short of using nuclear weapons. Right. And speaking of short, uh, we could talk about President Biden. Um, Haggerty, I know, Senator, you said on the on the Senate floor that Congress must have a say in the Iran nuclear agreement. I mean, this is worrisome. Uh, it is worrisome. And I think they're they are there in in Vienna right now. You know, who's negotiating on our behalf? It's Russia. Russia. I mean, it's just just shocking that we would find ourselves in a situation where we've got Russia and the Chinese Communist Party negotiating with Iran, the greatest state sponsor of terror. And they're going to tell us what the terms of the agreement ought to be. I think what Russia is looking for now is a back door to be able to use Iran as a back door to get around the sanctions that we've been imposing on them. And, you know, the Iranian leader walked away from the negotiating table just the other day. Uh, I think everything is coming Iran's way. I, would, I was ambassador to Japan before I joined the U.S. Senate. I worked very hard to impose sanctions on Iran by getting Japan to stop buying Iranian crude. I can tell you it wasn't easy. It took months of negotiations. Japan reminded me on a number of occasions that they fought a world war over access to energy. They were not pleased to do it. But when they finally did it, that was back in 2018, we began to really put pressure on Iran. These are the secondary sanctions that the Biden administration wants to do away with right away. And frankly, they've stopped enforcing them. We took Iran's foreign currency reserves down from $122 billion back in 2018 down to below 10 in 2020. That's how tight we ratcheted them down. That's how much pain they felt. And now uh, under the Biden regime, we've seen those reserves climb up north of 30, probably headed toward north of 40 right now. The Iranians are getting everything they want even without negotiating and coming to the table with us. Uh, this is just a, a very sad state of affairs. And uh, I understand the Iranians were saying the other day that uh, they think they have a deal with the United States through Russia. And the United States is not saying anything, and, and Russia hasn't said anything, but the Iranians are spreading that rumor. Well, the Russians are saying this, that Iran is going to come out far better than they had expected. 
Russia's taking credit for that, but they're saying that Iran has done far, far better than they would have expected. So, uh, again, I cannot believe we're in a situation where we're relying on Russia that is on the ground in Ukraine right now, waging a hot war, and we're relying on them to negotiate on our behalf with Iran, the greatest sponsor of terror in the world. Senator, it's, uh, it's Judge Richard Weinberg, sir. I saw your speech, and I thought it was a remarkable speech and very insightful. But what I don't understand at all is why the Biden administration is pushing this envelope on this proposal when it's only the lead to nuclear proliferation in the Middle East under the umbrella of, of Israel, and it's going to heat up and all the adversity that the Trump administration was pushing back. I mean, why, Senator Haggerty, why would the Biden regime, I like how he said it, the regime, why would they rather work with terrorists like Iran, like the, and so, then, then with our own people here and drill here so we can become energy independent again? I, I couldn't agree with you more. I said it today that the Biden administration would rather work with international killers than they would with American drillers. We should become energy independent. Biden could stop this tomorrow if he would step up and say, look, we're going to reopen the Keystone XL pipeline. We're going to reopen federal lands to to, to drilling again. We're going to get back in the business of being energy independent. We can come to the aid of our allies that way. That would send the signal that the market needs. What we hear is Jen Psaki saying, oh, there are these leases that aren't being used. Well, no one's going to commit the capital when they know that this that this administration is basically waging war on the oil and gas industry. It's a long way from, from having a lease to having the pipelines to transport the, the, the energy that you've just tapped. Uh, the Biden administration is not granting any any new pipeline uh, permits. Uh, this is this is just a fallacy. Again, it's a head fake. Yet you've got them going down to Venezuela and negotiating with Maduro, and you've got them praying that Iran will release a billion barrels of oil into the world market. That's their solution for this, is dealing with terrorists, <laughs> dealing with our known enemies, and still waging war on American industry. That You know, they cost – what, 11,000, 12,000 jobs by killing the Keystone XL pipeline. That's waging war on American workers. They'd rather sustain this policy than, than actually step up and fix this. Senator Haggerty, uh, we want to have you back if you're, if you're available in the next two days because we have to go to a break. And, and uh, you're saying some really good stuff. Uh, are you available in the next couple of days? We, we'll work it out with you, Jan. John. I'm more than happy to do that. Thank you, Senator Haggerty. And, Great uh, to be on with all of you. Thanks. God Thanks. bless. And uh, let's go to a break. Or We'll go to a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we who knows what we'll have. Maybe Governor Pataki. We'll be right back. It's a common sense recap of the big stories. It's Cats at Night on 77 WABC. Well, we're back. John Katzmatini's here. And this has been some terrific show today. I mean, General Keene uh, was, was phenomenal. The senator was phenomenal. And we're going to have him back because we're out of time. And we also uh, interviewed uh, uh, Governor uh, George Pataki, who's on his way to Hungary to help save some Ukrainians. And you did the interview, and we yeah. will tweet it out, and we will have it as part of our podcast. Right, WABCradio.com. And uh, basically, Governor Pataki is on a humanitarian effort, similar to what you did back in during Kosovo with Congressman King. And right now we're seeing that the Russians have bombed a maternity hospital I mean, the pictures are just heartbreaking. And so he's trying to make a difference. He says as a human being, and it reminds him of 9-11. You know, after 9-11, we said we're all New Yorkers. Well, he said after this, we're all Ukrainians. And I've we known need to George support a long them. time. I've never seen him since 9-11 being this animated, this intense. Congressman King, he, uh, he's, the governor is very emotional about it. and He's doing the right thing. We're going to help uh, the Ukraine and Judge Weinberg. 
What say you? I say we have to pray for the Ukrainians and hope they hold the Russians in place. God bless. And Lydia Serrani, my sidekick, thank you for everything you do. Absolutely. And uh, God bless uh, New York. God bless America. And God bless the Ukraine.